0: The Class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit from West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the Class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the War on Terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, These are the stories of those graduates as we look Through the Gray.
1: Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder owned company that specializes in handmade, one-of-a-kind American flags. I served with Andy spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey rustic woodworking flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, handcrafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder, or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order, and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift-giving this year.
0: Welcome to Through the Great. We're speaking with David Hughes. How are you doing today, Dave? Doing great, Joe. Thanks for uh, having me. And before we get started, I just want to say, Thank you for your labor of love here. I guess I'm number 85. I can't believe that you've woken up so early that many times. It's just past 5 a.m. for you, uh, about 8.15 or so for me. So thank you for doing this for our classmates, for our future, the ability to reflect later on down the road, for our kids to listen to this stuff. So I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's it's definitely a labor of love, Dave. I I love it. I, I really like this task. I'm glad I, I started it about a year and a half ago.
0: So first question, why West Point? That's a great question, Joe. I would have to say that it probably stems from my dad, who was a West Point grad in 1974 and in the back of my mind, he never was pushing me to go to West Point, but he had taken us up to West Point when I was very young. And I remember sitting on the cannons and I have pictures. In the, in the yellow shirt with the West Point on it. And when I was in about eighth grade, I had this teacher in high school that was a huge Naval Academy supporter. And I knew my dad had gone to West Point and I'm like, no, I, I really want to go to West Point. Uh, I want to beat Navy. It goes all the way back to eighth grade, uh, wanting to beat Navy. But that eighth grade teacher ended up becoming my high school basketball coach. And he knew I wanted to go to West Point and I believe that he made it his mission to get me ready as best as he could. So he was always really hard on me in basketball practice, but he also, when I eventually got into West Point, was probably my biggest cheerleader. So a big reason I went to West Point, my dad, and then secondly, my grandpa. My grandpa was a retired, was a retired 06. He did not go to West Point, but he lived the military life and just loved it. And even after he retired, after twenty six years, he continued to serve as a, a veteran of the Year in Maryland. He continued just to be involved in any kind of veteran activities. He loved Veterans' Day. so seeing that love of the military made me want to go also served in the military and you get me talking about the military, just how many folks in our family have served in the military, it certainly is a family business and uh, just very happy that I got the chance to go to West Point because it's Not some of my brothers tried to to, uh, get in and they weren't able to, it's, I know it's challenging to get into and it's challenging to graduate from, I just feel very blessed that I was given that opportunity to go to Westport. It's definitely one of those things that
1: based off of your experience, you talked to to some of our classmates that had to go to a preparatory college first to beef up their resume to fill a gap and then others uh, walk. Straight into the academy, or others go through uh, active duty service and get a, a regular active duty uh, service commission. That path sometimes you, re- you you don't realize how difficult it is for some of our classmates to get in.
0: No, you're right. So, what was your path like? Yeah, my path. I went right from high school right into West Point, and I honestly did not know about all the many different paths that you have to get into West Point, particularly like joining the military get on active duty and then get into west point from that path my brother oldest brother did decide to apply to west point he didn't get it i don't know if he was offered the prep school but he did get a full ride rotc scholarship to virginia tech which he took and he became an engineer officer and served his country very honorably but i came right out of high school i was the first person from my high school to make it into any service academy. I came from a very small high school. I think I graduated with 32 people. Being that I got to teach up at West Point, I actually got to look at a little behind the scenes of how the admissions process works. And I do realize that they t- once they find schools that churn out west point grads they're more likely to go to that same and my small school uh, had not had that so i somehow made it through the wickets they allowed me to come in and now a couple uh, quite a few more folks from my small school have uh, made it to west point which is pretty neat that is pretty
1: neat what do you think broke through for you what key things did you do in high school that Made you stand out to get you that get you access to get your profile and your application numbers.
0: From a very young age, I was always someone that was a perfectionist. I always strove to be the best in anything I did. I wasn't the smartest, certainly, but I certainly worked my tail off to to get to the the place where I was. It, I I think. I can link all the way back to second grade. I was getting, I think I was very impressionable uh, as a second grader. They had this system where uh, you could earn what they called buckos in order to uh, earn something at the end of the, at the end of the year. And I remember just, oh, I'm going to be the best at this. And I remember getting straight A's uh, obviously in second grade. And then all the way through high school, I ended up becoming the valedictorian of high school. Again, I only had to beat out 31 people. So don't, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but I, I, Again, I wasn't the smartest, but I just put the effort in and I worked my tail off to, to make sure that I was the best. I also participated in a lot of uh, sports. I love sports, played basketball, baseball, and soccer in high school. And uh, enjoyed being, just leading those teams and being the team captains by the time I was a senior. And I just had great folks around me, great coaches, and I think when you add up all those things of just working hard and participating in these different events and also leading in the, in the classroom as the class president, you ha- you end up building this resume and then you, you put it on paper and you're like, oh, I guess I did do quite a bit over my four years in high school and and you just hope that it measures up. Uh, my SAT scores were not that good. Like I told you, I, I'm i maybe not a good test taker, but I, if the SATs were a, a test that you could take over a course of a couple of days, I'm sure I would have done much better, but you're only given so much time to knock those things out. When you walked into
1: West Point, did you feel prepared? Obviously, pretty broad experience sets of athletics, academics, smaller school, but it also some exposure to the military as a kid because of your family's tradition. Did you feel prepared when you walked into West Point or was it a shock? I would have to
0: say that Academically, I probably was not as prepared as I could have been. I probably could have benefited, honestly, from going to the prep school to, to sharpen up some of those skills. But, um, you go from valedictorian and you're on the top of the world and then you come into beast barracks and you just get really quickly humbled and you realize that you're around greatness everywhere around you. Everyone is top notch, all your classmates quite impressive resumes, but I struggled my first semester there. Um, I believe, I don't know if I even had, i say in beast barracks, I really struggled, I got C's both the beast barracks one and beast barracks two. And that's probably mostly the military side, just adjusting. But I found that the academics, year, were very challenging for me, particularly. Do we have to take chemistry year? I believe so.
1: I think so. so.
0: chemistry was definitely kicked my butt.
1: It Um, was actually in Excel. I hadn't been exposed to Excel. And I remember doing some of the just the generic graphs that I could knock out real easily now. But we are, I remember sitting in chemistry in the lab and they're telling us to build just an Excel table for the data we're collecting. And that kicked my butt. I was like, what am I going to
0: expose to Excel (laughs) with chemistry? Yeah, you're right. I, I don't know how much I did as far as computers go. And Then all of a sudden you're issued a computer and you're expected to do all this stuff uh, with it. I just remember that my first two years at, at West Point, I thought we were very challenging. And not until I got into my major did I really start uh, improving my grades quite significantly. Can I roll back just a bit? What was the big,
1: what was the stressor or beast that that gave you pretty
0: average score? I don't know. I guess I was so used to being a team captain, being the class president, and being out in the front, and then all of a sudden you're asked to not be those things. And uh, I was given kind of advice, whatever you, don't volunteer for anything. I said, i go, going, that doesn't even make sense to me. And maybe in hindsight, maybe that was good advice. Like you just want to blend in and you don't want to... Uh, you definitely don't want to stand out, but that just wasn't my personality. And I think that probably rubbed the upperclassmen the wrong way. I don't know. It's not like I was intentionally trying to screw up. I just, my personality, uh, somehow, somehow stand out in, in a way that wasn't favorable for me.
1: It's weird that there's those, those cliches that you get where don't stand out. Don't be uh, a sore thumb. Because that fear of, either be drawing extra attention or the reverse is, is, which is this is the archetype or the stereotype of a good leader. So even if that doesn't match your personality, you should be doing that. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story.
0: Yeah, go ahead. I don't know if you remember this, but in Beast Barracks, there was, I think, a Costa Rican president came and he stood up from the poop deck and he announced that, hey, today during Beast Barracks, everyone can have dessert." Cause that was a big no, no dessert. You barely can chew like more than three or four times before swallowing a bite, bite to eat. And I remember him getting up and saying, Hey, everyone can have dessert. So I remember sticking my paw out from the far distance down the, the table. And my squad leader calls on me and I'm like, sure, permission to cut the cake. And he's like, oh yeah. The Costa American president said, yeah, of course. Pull out my template, ask everyone who wants cake and everyone who, you know, that wanted not so I end up probably having to cut it in, into seven, which is near impossible. <laughs> sure. Luckily, we had those templates that would help us with that. But I remember enjoying that dessert and just being excited about it. And hey, like, all my classmates, we got there. I helped us get to this point because I don't think our squad leader wasn't going to let us have this dessert, even though he said that we could have it. That squad leader goes on to tell every upperclassman after this whole ordeal that Dave Hughes or New Cadet Hughes loves dessert. So the next time we're out in the field and we're having Mermite meals, I get to the front of the line and they're like, oh no, it's New Cadet Hughes. Send them down to the end. And so they pushed me down to the end where there was strawberry cake. And I remember going, oh man, this is great. I love dessert. And they cut me a huge piece of cake and I went off and started eating it. And then they saw that I finished it and they go, oh, he's done. They brought me into a second piece and I'm sitting there going, this is amazing. Like, I love cake. You know how much I love dessert? And just imagine about eight or nine pieces later, I'm like near in tears because they're forcing me to, at this point, eat the cake until I threw up. So to this day, I actually despise strawberry cake. That's probably about the only dessert I hate. (laughs) But that's an example of I brought attention to myself and it definitely didn't serve me well. The
1: academics part, you brought that up and it's really struggling the first two years to set your feet uh, and really until you hit your major, you didn't really hit your stride. What key things turned it around for you besides uh, knowing what your passion academically was? What else helped uh, stabilize your grades and help you have relatively good success?
0: Yeah, I don't want to give you the impression that I was, like, really poor. I think I did end up finishing the, my play beer just over a 3-0. But, again, coming from someone where I was used to getting straight A's in second grade, that was a little bit of an adjustment for me to realize that, man, this coursework is definitely takes a lot more time and effort. I had some dreams of wanting to walk on to the basketball team or the baseball team at West Point, and then I realized these academics are much more challenging than I thought. And there's no, I can't see myself being able to do that stuff. So I think the biggest ones that were most challenging for me were probably chemistry and physics. Those kind of stick out in my mind as challenging courses. And then I, for some reason, the language or the English classes gave me quite a bit of challenge. In fact, the WIPWE, man, that WIPWE, I failed the WIPWE the first time I took it and I got the feedback from it and they're like, you made no errors, but you still failed because you didn't put three points. So I, whatever thing I was trying to argue, I think I only had two points and, and you have to get three out of five people that read it past you in order to pass the whip. I think I only had two out of the five. So I had to retake it. And that second, that third, I'm sorry, the second time I took the whip, I remember going, all right, no matter what, I'm making three points. And I remember the third point was really weak. And I'm like, I was going to make another point in order to pass. sure enough, I passed the second time. So just some funny stories about the challenging, the challenge at the WIPWE and English and physics and and chemistry definitely found out that those were not my, were not
1: my forte. You talked about possibly joining uh, like a core squad sport or engaging in other activities, but you were a little nervous with academics. When you settled your feet academically What areas of West Point did you think about? Hey, man, I would really want to lean into this experience and try something unique.
0: Are you talking about academically or are you saying just anything within West Point?
1: Anything within West Point.
0: That's a great question. Nothing comes to mind. I I just wanted to make sure that I did academically so that I had the opportunity to be able to come back someday. When I got into my major, I realized how much... I enjoyed my teachers, the officers that were mentoring us, and I wanted to be able to come back one day and, and talking to some of my mentors, they were you don't get to come back if you're not doing well academically. I definitely wanted to give it, get a chance to come back and I thought it was gonna be in the Department of Physical Education, to tell you the truth. I was the Brigade Physical Development Officer and I thought that was my calling because I it was doing pretty well physically. And then i got the chance to come back to the department of systems engineering and thinking about it between the two i was like you know what the department of systems is probably going to set me up for success later on in life much more than the department of physical education even though maybe i really enjoyed all the things that had to offer in the department of physical education i know from
1: my perspective like i came
0: into west point and after
1: I was enlisted, I left high school at 160 pounds because uh, I wrestled in high school, but I was 6'2". So I was this tall, lean, beanpole kid. And I spent most of my senior wrestling season in a haze because I was cutting weight to, to make varsity. I wasn't good enough to make weight at 172. And so I had to wrestle at 160. And I went walked to the West Point and I, I gained like a significant amount of weight. I was like 210. After basic training and after AIT, uh, and so it was. Oh, Joe, you've never played football in your life, but try out for the football teams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, that's going to work well. Um, and so that was the varsity team. It was core squad, like that you remember wow. during Beast, and they would have these open tryouts just to yeah. see if there's talent out there that they didn't know about. And everyone knows about core squad tables. Everyone knows about um, just a different lifestyle if you're a core squad. And so I tried out for the football and immediately, I think it was like one practice in. I couldn't run routes as offense. I couldn't run routes as defense. So I wasn't going to be a tailback. I wasn't going to be a wide receiver. I wasn't going to do anything of any value. And uh, I go back to wrestling and I was doing okay against some very talented, very skilled, very capable people. But I kept remembering my senior year in high school. And I said, man, I don't want to be in a haze. And similar to you, I, I knew academics were going to challenge, me, and I wondered if I could do that while also calorie deprived. And, and so I was looking for what else is out there. And that ultimately led me to the skydiving team. Uh, so yeah, that, that's I why mean, I asked the question. It's like, all right, what were you looking for that unique West Point experience? Because how many people could do a skydiving team? How many people can do uh, a core squad sport? It's a unique college experience. man. Can I do something that allows me to participate in some of these unique activities that West only West Point or only college can offer?
0: No, I mean, that's awesome. And I applaud you for finding that passion, that sport that you enjoyed and uh, were able to experience that. For me, intramurals, I was getting my outlet of sports through the intramural program. I loved every day getting a chance to play with my company mates. My my first company was C4, and we won the brigade championship for soccer, I believe, two years in a row. If not, if we didn't win two years in a row, at least we're in the championship two years in a row. I remember playing with folks like Brad Hunstable, Rob Rodock, and some some of the yearlings on that team. I still keep in touch with today. So loved having the outlet of sports through intramurals, and I got to. Try so many different sports through that, so I think I played rugby and football, basketball, area hockey. The list keeps going on and on of all the intramurals that I got to play. And so I enjoyed at least getting my outlet of sports through that medium. Because if honestly, if I would have tried to play play on those varsity teams, I probably would have sat the bench for both baseball and basketball, and I would have had to travel and all those things that come with being a core squad. At, athlete, and that's just going to take away from being able to really focus on your academics.
1: Talk me through the opportunity to be a man. Yeah.
0: Oh, man. The opportunity came out of nowhere. I'm on brigade staff, senior year. I'm rooming with Matt Zimmerman, and I believe someone came up in my room. It was either Carly Lemler or Russ who are now married, Russ Leveler, Carly Romano, I'm sorry, and Russ Leveler, who are now married. One of those two, I think, came in my room and said, hey, I know how much you love going to these Army football games and how much spirit you have. Would you consider being a man? And I'm like, no. I think so. and they're like, oh, no, come on. And I said, well, let me just think about it for at least 24 hours. So I talked to a bunch of my buddies and, and started thinking about it. I was like, you know what? One day when I'm like a grandpa, I'll be able to tell stories about Hey, I was A-man. I, uh, I did certain cool things when I was at West Point my senior year. I said, I'll, I'll do it. So it wasn't something that I sought out. It, someone asked me to do it. I had to think about it pretty hard. And uh, it's probably one of the best decisions that I ever made at West Point was it, being it A-man. Because, man, I've been able to experience things and interact with the future A-mans uh, when I was at West Point and inspire them. And I was just at the football game this past weekend and I'm walking along and one of my classmates will say, Hey Dave, what's going on? They say, Hey, what's up, A-man? How you doing? It's something that's just been a lot of fun. Glad I got a chance to do it and bring the army spirit. I, I still talk to General Christman. He still chats with me all the time and still refers to me as A-man, which is pretty cool it's a small
1: list of people. And it's a it's a heck of a pedigree. I remember, I think it was Nate Conkey class of
0: 99. There's some pretty big names there, man. <laughs> I guess so. I did not think about that at all at the time. Uh, but what was really cool about being a man is that you got a chance to get full authos. So no more drill for me. Every time, every day I was able to Use those full off those and go lift. And I went, went down with the Rabble Rousers and they taught me how to do backflips on football Saturdays. You're going around to all these different tailgate. You get down to Army Navy uh, for the big gala. You get to, it's just it's really cool. You get to be on the field for all these different events. So awesome. Do you remember Army Navy, our senior year being in Baltimore? Do you remember what I did to the Navy Goat? I have no idea left and right of that though. So, what set that up? Oh my goodness. So, I get to the game early. I'm already dressed up in my A man costume, but it was a very cold Saturday. So, I actually had this army coat on top of my what do you call those shirts? A sleeveless shirt that I had on. And I remember getting to my seats where I think we were with F1 folks and this, the Navy goat. Billy comes over and starts taunting the cadets before the game. And so all my classmates, hey, Dave, you got to get down there. And so I threw off my jacket to my buddies and I started making my way down to the field. And about to jump from the stands down on the field, and the security guards were like, You're not allowed to do that. No, he's a man. He can do whatever he wants. (laughs) So I jumped out on the field, and the Navy goat starts like running away to the uh, Navy sideline. And I start Chasing after him. And at this point, the media sees what's going on. And if you remember, there's a Jumbotron at the Raven Stadium, and they catch all the action up on the Jumbotron as I catch up to the goat, body slam him to the ground, put a three count hold on him, and and the the crowd's going crazy. It's awesome. And it ends up getting written about in the Army magazine. Uh, Pretty cool experience. And I got to share that story. So many times with cadets, after you get taught them in the classroom and maybe you share with them at some point during the 40 lessons, hey, I was a man. Here's this picture. And they always thought they just got the biggest kick. How many hours did you get to do that? How many hours did you have to walk for doing that? And I thought, None. I was a man. You have to do whatever you want.
1: It's something about the power of uniform. And there were things that I remember when I was later on in the military. I look back I was like why the heck how the heck was I able to do x and in this moment you're the green tabard you're the guy that someone is looking to to take care of a situation and you can either keep your jacket on and you can stay in the crowd or you can do what you've been asked to do which is be the really be that 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 symbol or that
0: talisman for the unit That's a great point. I'll have to say, A-Man, he exists in different ways for me over my 22 years that I was in in the service. When I was in the Department of System Engineering, uh, I led the intramural team. I put together the teams. I coached almost every single noontime sport that we had when we were in the Department of Systems. And they affectionately called me the commish. So, now I have this, another nickname amongst my DSC colleagues, and they call me the Commish. So, Amen, the Commish. I, I don't know, I just, I gravitate towards team building. I love bringing teams together. I love motivating teams. I think that's probably one of my greatest strengths, and I probably didn't realize that when I was in high school. But certainly now I know that's what my strength is, and I believe that even my job that I just where I'm working now, they brought me in to bring the teams together and build them up and get folks excited about coming to work and all those things. Just keeping the morale high sometimes is, is, sometimes I wonder if that's why they brought me is just to improve morale around the office space.
1: For you coming into that senior year, what really drove your branch choice? You had a a military heavy pedigree in your family. What drove your branch choice?
0: Yeah. That's a great question. I think that stems all the way back to infantry week, which I believe was during uh, our yuck summer. Yeah. What do we, what was that called? Buckner. Infantry week was Buckner.
1: Every week is yeah, yeah. infantry week in Buckner.
0: But I, I believe there was a week that was, you were out in the field for a full you're, straight week. You'd
1: exposed to the uh, the different branches. So you go out and like a field artillery set up. Uh, yeah. they, they put us in like a, a, a rubber boat in your, you're paddling through one of the lakes. I don't know if it was uh, Lake Frederick or not, but you're paddling through one of the lakes and you're doing boat trails for engineers. So they expose you to that, and then you take you down to Knox and they show you some tanks and some Bradleys down Knox.
0: Yeah. I will tell you what, whatever infantry week was, I remember we were moving through the woods in the middle of the night, and it might have been we had to use our compass to get from point A to point B. You could barely see anything. You're getting poked in the eye. You're falling off cliffs. And then at the end of wherever we had to get from point A to point B, you got picked up by a UH UH UH-1 Huey helicopter and taken back to the start line. And it was like a 30-second experience where it took me all night to get maybe three or four clicks. It's like, man, that helicopter ride was awesome. It only took us 30 seconds to get back to the start point. I ain't going to do this anymore, like. Aviation immediately jumped up to the top of my list of wanting to do that. And you have to go through all the medical qualifications and take some certain tests. But from that point, I was set on, I'm going aviation. And it also motivates you to make sure you continue to study and do well because your branch choice comes from your class rank at that point. It's no longer like that at West Point, but back in the day, that's how it all worked. Talk me through what it was
1: like to graduate and then begin the journey to go to basic officer course.
0: Yeah, graduation, June 2nd, 2001. What a great day. What a fun day that was. Moving down to Fort Rucker, Alabama. You're, you know that it's going to be about a year and a half to two years through flight school, but the officer basic course is towards the end of that. It's also, we also had to do SEER Bravo Plus down there all those were good like for me were good memories i really enjoyed flight school i enjoyed being down there out of the west point kind of bubble and getting to have a little bit more freedom down there but in the back of my mind early on in flight school 9 11 happened and i think i was in aeromed class and as soon as 9 11 happened I remember talking to all my classmates that were down there and we all realized that everything that we're doing for the next year and a half was going to be super important. We, we, there was no longer, this is just going to be like a fun, maybe necessarily a fun experience, but we got to take it super seriously. We better memorize these limits. We better memorize these emergency procedures because quite frankly, we're going to probably have to use them at some point in a combat zone. That definitely reframed flight school. Once 9-11 happened, but going through uh, that experience certainly was different than West Point. In some ways, a good way be more independent, but also once 9-11 happened, we certainly had to take our jobs super seriously because we were going to find ourselves in harm's way a short amount of time.
1: I think that's one of those things that a lot of people don't truly understand. In the 90s, the last big war was Desert Storm, and it was 100 hours and 100 days. And then everything else, you're looking at Bosnia, you're looking at Kosovo, and you're looking at those small events, extremely intense, like Somalia or Grenada or Panama, but there wasn't these huge, long, massive deployments. And so there wasn't that expectation that you would be called on to serve. There was the possibility that you'd be called to serve. And 9-11 really changed that.
0: Oh, for sure. Even when we were, well, I'll just, I'll share a story real quick. I got married right after flight school in December of 2002. A couple weeks later, after my marriage, I'm landing in Germany for my first assignment. And I get off the plane as a newlywed. And my sponsor says, hey, Dave, don't tell your wife this, but we we just got notified that we're going to Iraq for OIF-1, Operation Iraqi Freedom. I was like, oh, man. I definitely don't want to tell my wife that she's gonna freak out. We're in a foreign country, just found out that we're about to deploy, and it was relatively—it was going to be a relatively quick, deplo- quick amount of time until the deployment. When our unit deployed in in March, I wasn't with them because I actually got injured playing basketball. My love of sports got me injured, uh, so my battalion commander asked me to become a rear detachment commander. But. Even in the back of all our minds, we all thought this was going to be a 30-day war, similar to the Gulf War. And as a really commander, having that expectation, and 30 days comes and goes, and what we hadn't even heard from the folks, the communication was that poor. Two months comes and goes, we still haven't heard anything. Maybe somewhere in the second or third month, we fi- finally got a very broken call via sat phone that says, hey, just let everyone know that we're all okay, and you know, we're not coming home anytime soon. basically was the message to relay back to the families. So that was certainly a huge eye-opening experience for a brand new, I guess at this point I'd be a first lieutenant because I flight school for a year and a half. But to be in charge of the rear detachment for a war that we had no idea how long it was going to last. And I'm in a foreign country as a newlywed, certainly. Uh, an interesting experience
1: now did you stay the route the detachment commander for that 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 deployment?
0: No, actually about the eight year, eight month mark, they finally found a captain that had come back and take the Rudy over for me. So I got out to Iraq in October of two thousand and three and then I realized, man, what I was doing back there was so much responsibility. And when I finally got to Iraq, I said, man, life is so easy. All I had to do was responsible for myself and getting back up to readiness level one to fly helicopters in Iraq. <laughs> so for me, getting to Iraq actually was much easier than uh, being the route detachment commander. I, I have so many crazy stories Uh, Being ready where a soldier shot themselves in the foot in order to get out of deployment. And then they send the the soldier back to me. And now I have to figure out what to do with them. The soldier ended up getting court-martialed and sent to prison for two years for malingering just to get out of a deployment that ended up being one year long. Stuff like that that I had to deal with. I had to deal with all the soldiers that were having problems downrange. And they needed to be chaptered out. And people, it's a thankless job. And I just was very happy to eventually get downrange and get progressed and get my experience downrange. But also it was tough being away from my wife uh, for those, which is probably why when I went to back to Afghanistan, my wife decided that she wanted to go with me, which was a whole nother story. All right. right,
1: Talk me to yourself. You come back from Iraq after about 100 uh, days. Uh, You redeploy with your unit tells you you're going to go to Afghanistan and your wife comes with you? How the heck?
0: <laughs> yeah. I swear that I'm the only person that I know where I brought my civilian wife to a war zone. I, I honestly haven't met another person that has done this. We get back from Iraq and literally within a week, they told us we were going back to Afghanistan, less than a year later. So my wife hearing this is, Dave, hey, that hundred days really was, it was tough. And we had this other warrant officer in the unit that was married to a warrant officer in the unit that was in OIF-5. So we were going to OIF-6. She came back for R&R, and we had them over for dinner. And we're like, hey, so what is it like being married over in the combat zone? And Or actually, they weren't together, but like, we heard that there were different people that were married together in the combat zone. We're like, I wonder if there's civilian jobs over there. And so this gal went back after her R&R and then said, hey, if you want to get a civilian job, contact the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical Education Center. They have an opening and maybe you can apply for it. Sure enough, Megan applies for it. She's on Bagram Air Base with me for the entire 10 months. We spent more time together over those 10 months than we have in our entire 20-plus year marriage. We went, we Worked out in the morning together. We ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We watched American Forces Network at night, watching Ohio State uh, play football on the weekends. Quite an interesting experience to have your wife, who's a civilian, with you. Just imagine how that conversation went with her family, (laughs) her parents, when I said, hey, I'm taking your daughter to a combat zone for 10 months.
1: So what what was her role? With Embry-Riddle is an aeronautical university. Were they doing like continuing education for soldiers deployed forward to Afghanistan?
0: Yeah, she was like the director, uh, and she would recruit folks that had master's degrees or PhDs over there to teach courses. She would sign up the soldiers so they could take these courses. She would send the grades back. But yeah, she worked 12-hour days, seven days a week. But again, we still saw each other more there than any time in our whole time in the military.
1: That is such a crazy story. It's the, it's the crazy thing about the army where you'll have a green beans coffee, you'll have AFI's, and you'll have continuing ed going on.
0: <laughs> so- My wife actually goes, for her spending 10 months with me, she goes, Dave, I, I now know life is not that hard when you're deployed. She goes, they made us breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They did her laundry, and she competed in a... In the 10Ks that they had at Bagram Air Base, every month they would have this 10K that you'd run around the air, the perimeter. And she was a pretty talented runner, and she won it as a female every single time. And so they gave her gift certificates to Pizza Hut and to Dairy Queen, which was all on Bagram Air Base. She goes, you guys, wasn't that bad. But I guess it depends if you're actually out there fighting or if you're just staying on the air base the entire time. Much different experiences. Yeah. I was down in Kabul,
1: so I, my, my head, I tip my hat to you and your wife. There was this, like there was a memo they handed us when we were down there about the prehistoric poop that was in the air down in Kabul. Oh, yeah. They had, we were, I was down at Camp Phoenix, and so you'd be running laps on Camp Phoenix, and you're inhaling this micro, fine, prehistoric poop into your mouth. And I had the worst run times of my life in Kabul. So if your wife is up in, in Bagram and she's kicking butt, God bless her. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it was
0: a little bit better up in Bagram, a little higher pre- altitude, I believe, too.
1: How did, how did that relative normalcy of Bagram compare to when you'd go out and you'd be doing air operations in Afghanistan? Because some of those mountains were extremely high and some of those valleys, yeah. you couldn't fly over the mountains. So you had to, to go through some pretty tough spots.
0: Yeah, that's a what great was question.
1: that like that that juxtaposition between what felt like a normal kind of fob well, life versus we, the intensity of those air assault and those air movement missions.
0: Yeah, for sure. We our unit flew every single day, multiple missions a day on these what we call ring routes. So we're supplying all the Ford operating bases all over Afghanistan. So we're routinely flying in the Korangal Valley. We're routinely flying out to Salerno or all, all the way, even as far down south as Kandahar, just doing resupply rings. But we also did air assault missions where we would drop folks in under the cover of darkness um, into harm's way. Very cool mission for the Chinook. It was really one of the only birds that could operate at that altitude with a, lot, a significant amount of power. Apaches had a tough time flying over there. You didn't really see Kiowa warriors over in Afghanistan at all because of the pressure altitude. But we had to do training in order to be able to operate in that environment. I remember in the, when I was stationed in Germany, we went up to the German Alps and we would practice two-wheel landings in the German Alps in order to prepare for the moment that we would have to drop two wheels on the side of a mountain to pick people up or to drop people off or even on top of rooftops. So the training that we got, the high-altitude training that we got, certainly prepared us, but it doesn't prepare you for every single situation that you encounter. On April 6, 2005, we lost Chinook. We lost 18 people, uh, five people from our unit in Big Windy. And it's probably one of the most impactful days uh, of my Army career. Basically, a dust storm came out of nowhere. And I don't know if you've you've experienced any of these dust storms in Iraq or Afghanistan, but this flight of two Chinooks inadvertently punches into a dust storm. And we have emergency procedures that we have to follow immediately or you're at risk because the mountain peaks are so high and you don't want to fly your Chinook right into the side of a mountain. So when that happens, what you're supposed to do is immediately climb to the safe altitude, which is... At the top of the mountains, which is typically twelve to fourteen thousand feet, and then you're supposed to follow the GPS points back to bagram Air Base. One of the Chinooks that popped in had a got misoriented in their Chinook. They didn't transition to their instruments quick enough, and they end up flipping the Chinook, and all eighteen folks on board passed away just outside of Gosney. The other Chinook was able to make it back, and. And they, d- they described the moments when all this went down and, and what they heard from the transmissions between aircraft it just gives me chills to this day thinking about it. The next day, I got asked to go recover the bodies. Actually, it was two days later because the dust storm was so bad that it lasted for, I believe, 48 hours. We had to go back to the crash site and recover some of the bodies that hadn't been recovered yet. and. Certainly, that experience weighs heavily on and probably shapes a lot of the things that I do to this day.
1: I know there, for each one of us in a combat deployment, there's a moment where it stops feeling like a training exercise and it really gets real. And some of the, for some people, it's really early on in deployment, and some people, it's much later on. But this profession that we're in is. Absolutely brutal. It's absolutely ruthless. It doesn't care how good you are. It doesn't care how smart you are. It doesn't care. And you could have a bad moment for a split second, and you could lose some amazing people.
0: For sure. Every year, Windy Two Five—that was the call sign of the the Chinook—they hold a 5K to remember the crew members of Wendy two five april six 2005 never gonna forget that date
1: how did that impact the remainder of the deployment for you and also being forward deployed with your wife how did that impact
0: your relationship with her yeah that's a great question right when it happened i remember knowing who was on that manifest and the folks hadn't been notified. The families hadn't been notified yet. So I didn't feel like my wife should know, even though she was in Afghanistan. I felt like the families needed to be notified as first. So as she is over there in Afghanistan with me, and we're still going to the dining facility together, she knows it's not me. She knows the Chinook went down. And she also knows the folks that are in my unit. So as she sees individuals in the dining facility, she knows who it's not but she doesn't know who it is. She found out the names of the people just at the same time that the families, once it was officially released. So she was just as devastated to know who was on the aircraft as all of us. And obviously she's able to attend the memorial services and stuff out there, but it certainly gives you a different perspective on life. We didn't have kids at the time. Again, this is, April of 2005, our first child wasn't born until September of 2006. But it certainly makes you value your experiences with each other because you don't know when the next, your last day is going to be. You don't know when your last breath is going to be. And I'm sure it it was nerve-wracking for her because I still continued to fly about once a week while I was over there in Afghanistan. Yeah. Definitely makes you have a different perspective on life when something big like that happens. Talk me about
1: redeployment and the the career choices you make coming back after Afghanistan.
0: Can you say that question again?
1: Talk me through redeployment for Afghanistan and the next steps and the career choices you make.
0: made. Yeah, so when I got back from Afghanistan, uh, that was again the second deployment, Luckily, only one of them was away from the family. I started to read the tea leaves that if I wanted to stay in Afghanistan, or sorry, stay in the aviation branch, I would be deploying every year, every other year, probably for the rest of the career. Because at this point, we didn't see an end to being the global war on terrorism. We just didn't. I figured if I was gonna stay in aviation, to be deployed the year and it's going to be tough to start a family. It's going to st- it be tough to be present if we do have kids. So I started really looking into alternatives to be at the aviation. Uh, I want, you know, I, I had already mentioned that I wanted to go back and teach at West Point. And uh, there's also folks that teach in the department of system engineering. A lot of them change over to the Functional Area 49, which is called a systems, it's called an ORSA Operations Research Systems Analyst. And I talked to a number of different ORSAs and said, hey, what is it like to be an ORSA and what's your deployment cycle like? And the word on the street was is that you're more likely to get one deployment every five years as an ORSA versus every other year as an aviator. That was, that sounded very attractive to me. So I went and taught at West Point I switched over to the functional area of 49 and it certainly was true. There was much fewer deployments. I only had one deployment in 2013, uh, which was my final deployment as an ORSA. It was with NATO special operations. That was an awesome deployment, um, as far as just career development and. I did get to see my family a whole lot more as an ORSA, probably if I would have stayed than if I would have stayed as an aviator.
1: What was that transition like, uh, leaving the aviation community, moving into the ORSA community, and also the teaching uh, systems there at West Point?
0: Fortunately, I switched into ORSA, and my first assignment was teaching at West Point in the Department of System Engineering. And that Group of individuals that I got to serve with, maybe about 30 to 40 people was one of the most special experiences for me that everyone there was pretty much handpicked. everyone there was back supporting the mission of wanting to develop leaders of the next generation and so we, I felt we felt united together in that way, and at the same time you're, you're building this Orsa tool set. You're building your toolkit and knowing it probably better than you have than you normally would because you have to teach it in the classroom. And there's no better way to learn something than being forced to have to teach it to some other some other folks. So that was a great experience for me. It really allowed me to develop those skills and then go out and apply them to places like the NATO special operations and also at the Center for Army Analysis, where we supported the four deployed analysts. So that was a for me, that was a great assignment. I loved teaching in the Department of System Engineering. Probably my favorite assignment, to tell you the truth, in my 22 years. What
1: was so simple, impactful? Was it the other cadre that were and professors you were working with? Was it
0: the students? It was the students, 100%. Love mentoring cadets. These folks all signed up to be at West Point after 9-11, so they knew what they were getting into. And that was such an awesome inspiration for me, saying, you guys, like, I did not join the military knowing that we were going to be at war. These folks did. And, uh, that just inspired me. And I just wanted to pour as much as I could into them, give them the mentorship that needed to be successful from day one when they pinned on second lieutenant.
1: What was the ORSA experience like for you for the, the remainder of your military career? What were the really cool moments where you're like, man, look what I did to help shape strategy, help straight, uh, shape the operational
0: performance or the tactical performance of the Army? Oh, man. That's a great question. Let me just think about that really quickly. Some of the things that kind of jump out at me as an ORSA was coming back to the Center of Army Analysis for the second time and thinking that I was going to, again, do just analytical work to support the warfighter. I didn't quite do the analytical stuff that I thought, but I got instead thrown into a wargaming division. And I didn't even know what wargames were. And I didn't know that even people played wargames as board games to fight past histories, past wars from history. So I get thrown into this wargaming division, and the first assignment that I was given was running the chairman of the Joint Chiefs Wargame called the Globally Integrated War Game. And we hold this war game at NGA, which is near Fort Belvoir, and it's the biggest high-profile thing I've ever been a part of. There were four stars. Chairman General Milley showed up to the final event, and this war game went off really smoothly, and you get to see these, this, these strategic decisions being made off of this war game that you're just like running one iteration through, it just... Blew my mind, honestly, as an ORSA going like, how are they using one data point to make all these big decisions? But really what it came down to is you had all the subject matter experts from across the military, all the different branches in one room talking about our, how to defeat our near peers in the year 2030, which just, it was pretty awesome. And then the second war game, the last war game that I ran ended up being in Hawaii And we had to go TDY to Hawaii like once a month for two years straight, it felt. And that one, the secretary of the army ends up coming to that one. And you're just like, man, these war games are just obviously so impactful because you have the best, the best folks informing these different decisions that you're making in order to influence what the army is going to look like, or the military is going to look like in five or 10 years from pretty, pretty neat stuff.
1: I remember the the first time I was exposed to some of those, and like you said, you did like you're walking into it like there's no way that this event, whether it's a tabletop exercise, whether it's a a full simulation with some role playing and some free play, but it's almost like a, a sport. You can practice all day long, or you can talk through what you're going to do all day long. But until you actually have the competition of against another force or the friction of actually walking through the plan in some sort of simulated rehearsal. You won't get to those friction points.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a great summary, Joe. (laughs) Some people still probably don't know what WarGaming is, but you summarized it pretty well there. It's running through different courses of action and finding out where those friction points are and then talking through how to solve, coming up with different COAs, courses of action to... To address those friction points,
1: I remember a couple of years back, we were preparing for the possibility of a fight on the Korean Peninsula. And without getting too geeky for the audience, there was the idea of a force flow from the United States overseas and the number of planes, trains, automobiles to move forces within a time consp- compressed uh, window. Yep, and the assumptions that are made with that is we're going to pick up our gear in Korea and it's all going to be in Korea, or we're going to we're going to fly all of our people on planes and their all of their equipment on planes, and all those assumptions were crap because (laughs) everyone had a different assumption of who owned what part of task, and these were extremely competent professionals, two stars, three stars, four stars with enormous staff. but when you got into the weeds of Who owns what? That's when you're like, holy crap, this is hard.
0: Well, yeah. That's one of probably the biggest things that you need to settle on before you even start these war games is what are the assumptions we're operating under? Because if everyone doesn't agree on those assumptions, no one's going to trust the results of the war game. Absolutely. I remember months upon months of work and then we'd go
1: back and we'd have to reassess because we found out that an assumption was not a fact. We thought we had X number of planes, but uh, the Air Force came back and said, Hey, yeah, you actually have a third of what you thought you had. (laughs) (laughs) Yep.
0: That's how it happens. Talk me through
1: the transition. You're at ORSA. you're doing these big brain uh, tasks. You're helping shape army policy. What is still driving you? What are you still doing personally and professionally as you're getting closer to the end of your military career?
0: Yeah, I, I would say that bef- the thing that drove me the most was actually, so remember I, I shared, I loved that first teaching assignment at West Point. Yeah. As I was finishing up assignment in 2012, I knew immediately I had to come back. I wanted to come back to teach in the Department of System Engineering again. So my focus was, is what do I need to do in order to get back to teach these cadets one more at least one more three-year tour so one of the ways to be able to come back is, is to pursue a PhD and I at this point I was all schooled out but in order to get back I was like if I got to do a PhD I get it's a means to an end so I'll apply for a, a position and if I get selected I'll just somehow figure out a way to get through this rigorous PhD program so I talk to my mentors somehow I get selected. I said, oh, shoot, this PhD is going to be brutal. I've heard that only 50% of folks that start a PhD in the military actually finish it. So I talked to my buddy, Sam Huddleston, and I said, hey, Sam, what what should I do a PhD? And he goes, Dave, whatever you do, just do it in something you're passionate about. Because if you're passionate about it, you're going to probably have a better chance of finishing it. So I go, Sam, you know how much I love sports. He goes, if you can get the Army to let you do a sports PhD, you should do it. So I talked to my, the bosses in the department of system engineering, and I, I think I get the green light. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And I reach out to the University of Virginia, George Mason University, and I said, hey, is there anyone here interested in taking on an army officer in a sports analytics PhD? And the folks at George Mason, like seven professors came back and said, I'll take you. So I, I end up choosing George Mason over UVA. UVA said they would let me do it as well, but George Mason was nice because I was already at Fort Belvoir and I didn't have to move my family. So we were able to stabilize for five years. So I end up doing a sports PhD there. I'm the first ever at George Mason to finish, to do a sports PhD. And I get up to West Point, pretty just happy that I completed it, to tell you the truth, because it, it was, t- even towards the end, like you'd be like, actually finished this thing. I get it finished. I get brought in by my bosses in the systems. And they say, who told you you could do a sports analytics PhD? I said, sir, you did. And he goes, I don't remember that. I'm like, okay, this is not going to go well. My first year. And the deputy department head who was with the department head that's given me this counseling pulls me aside afterwards. He sees I'm pretty devastated. Oh my gosh. I just, basically he thinks I just went rogue and did this on my own. And I was pretty pretty confident that I asked him that he said I, I could do it. But anyway, that was neither here nor there. I'm in, i feel like I'm in trouble. And my, de- the deputy comes and pulls me aside and says, Dave, I know what he said, but he's retiring in about a year and I'm going to be your boss. And I think it's darn awesome that you did that. <laughs> so I felt a little bit better about it. And I get up there and now I'm like mentoring cadets doing sports honors projects. And we're talking Dozens of cadets wanting to do this. And then my last year up at West Point, I wor- I mentor this cadet, DJ Pinter, and he- we cold called the NBA, and the NBA gave us all this tracking data from the- that are from the cameras that are in all the facilities, tracks where all the players are, where the ball is at every moment in time. And we do this awesome rebound analysis project. It ends up winning the Hollis Award at West Point, which is the number one operations research project at West Point. And I tell DJ, I said, DJ, at the, when you're given this presentation, at the end, they're going to ask you, how does this relate to the military? And he answers it flawlessly, talks about global positioning systems and how we can record data on soldiers. And it's the same as t- sports teams. And, and we can look at policy changes based on the movements of soldiers. He, he just answered it awesome. And he has won the Hollis Award. and I felt at that point completely vindicated for doing a sports analytics PhD and now Where I landed working for the NFL, I I feel like I probably made the right call to to do it, even though it may be, in some people's eyes, it was not authorized to do so. It's one of those things that, man, is
1: it cool. But when you look at human performance, there are so many aspects to it, whether it's the moral, whether it's the physical, whether it's the spiritual. To tap into and to maximize the performance of individuals and groups, to not look at that closely Mm -hmm. as an organization, it just seems that why wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, it's a great point. To tell you the truth, the organization that I'm working with right now that we're working with NFL, we're about to expand and we may go into the NBA, but one of the potential climate clients that we may be working with is actually DOD. Because I think they're finally seeing that, hey, if we track, if we can even prevent injuries in soldiers, how much more time can we get back? How much more money can we get back uh, in future VA claims or even just having the ability to have a full squad to go do a movement to contact? Certainly, there's a lot of parallels between sports and the military and athletes and soldiers.
1: It's just amazing what's happened in the NFL in the last five to 10 years when you're going from right. full pad scrimmages where you have these multi million dollar, 20 plus years of coaching over 10,000 hours per player hitting each other at full speed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or you have a, a robot tackling dummy that they're chasing that when they hit it, they can hit it at full speed, but it doesn't cause the same trauma to their body. Right. And just a couple of those small tweaks, how many more games, how many more plays, how many more years are we adding onto that professional athlete's uh, career by changing the way that we practice with a couple of small tweaks?
0: Yeah, it, and not only that, just the rules. Like We're constantly trying to tweak the rules to make the game safer.
1: And same thing, you could flip that on the other side. As a leader in the Army, we probably cause soldiers to have shorter careers or shorter service time because we, you need hard training, but it has to be smart training. You want the full pads. You want that soldier to experience extreme physical duress and then be able to respond and act after that. But can you replicate that
0: with a lower physical
1: impact long-term?
0: For sure. The title of my PhD was actually looking at substitution strategies in basketball. And it was relating to not only your offensive metrics and defensive metrics and even maybe your experience out on the basketball court, but also your physiological factors. How quickly are you decaying and how quickly when you're on the bench do you recover? And those parallels, even for an aviator in the cockpit, there are rule sets that govern aviators in cockpit that say you can only fly eight hours at a time, and you might be able to get an extension from the brigade commander for an hour, and then another extension for another hour from maybe the first general officer in the chain of command. But it makes you wonder, is every aviator just good up to eight hours, or are some aviators like not as good after five hours, and maybe they should be substituted out after five? And so my whole thought process in this is we should probably have data on the capabilities of our soldiers so that we know when to swap them in and out of a mission so they're not a liability. As we wrap up, what were the key takeaways
1: of your time of service uh, in the military and your, your
0: experience at West Point? Key. You're talking about just key experiences at West Point or over my 22 years? I would say making investments in the next generation is probably the most impactful thing that I was able to do over those 22 years. Building relationships, using my network to further something in order to get further uh, or accomplish a mission. But when it comes down to it, my time mentoring those cadets and having them now out there serving as company commanders and hopefully using some of the lessons that they learned from me, some leadership lessons. To me, that's where I got the most, I had the most impact. It was probably there. And I certainly hope that those cadets now will go back and some of them will teach back at West Point and continue to give back to the future of our army, to our military, just continue that cycle. Do you have any comments to the class? Oh man, comments to the class. I wish I knew more of our classmates. I think that's it's one of those things that you you graduate with about a thousand of of your classmates, and you maybe only know ten or twenty percent of them pretty well, and maybe only five or ten percent really well. I wish that I knew more of my classmates, and I really appreciate you, Joe, doing these kind of interviews so that we can get to know our classmates a little bit better, so that when we come up on our 25th reunion here shortly, or 30th reunion, and so on and so forth, that we get to ask them some more questions about what we learned about them in their interviews. I really appreciate all our classmates. We served in a really tough time. We were at war for over 20 years, and I guess in some ways we're still our, our nation's in conflict. Many of us are still serving. So thank you to those that are continuing to serve past their commitment time, past the 20-year mark. It certainly is another labor of love to the nation and to our class. Thank you very much for sharing today, Dave.
1: It's really interesting what you were able to do as an orson, not getting your Ph.D. as an academy professor, and then what you're
0: doing now with the, the NFL. Thanks, Joe. I I appreciate you taking the time again. It's early on your end, and just it's inspiring that you've been able to do eighty-five of these interviews. And I I really hope that you get to at least a hundred, so that we can say, "Hey, lately you got you recounted at least ten percent of our class." That's that's a pretty cool goal to try to hit. The stories are absolutely crazy. The things that our classmates have done
1: from being FBI agents to state troopers to working for the NFL to redesigning the, I- the Army's personnel policies on how we recruit, retain, and invest in talent. There are so many stories on what Ash was able to do to describe and invest in the Army's payload for soldier. Mm-hmm. I just listed three horses real quick on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's us. But it, it's absolutely astonishing. That idea, and I'm going to go back to A-Man real quick, that if you take a talented and educated and motivated person and you pin a rose and say, solve this problem, whether it's an angry mascot or, or some really complex problems, they will lead teams to solve it. And that is something that I think is unique about west point unique about the military and unique about our class because every time you put that label on one of our classmates they rise to the occasion they say if you ask me i will
0: wow I will I do it <laughs> until done that's an amazing summary joe and i really hope that you can secure a woman you got to <laughs> get her perspective because she is one of a kind and she has served our class so amazing so amazingly so Carly, if you're listening to this, please sign up to get interviewed by Joe. Awesome. Hey, thanks for the shout out, Dave. Have a great day until duty is done. Until duty is done. Thanks, Joe.
1: Beat Navy. Beat Navy. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber Deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder coated hardware to their top selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in shop to create one of a kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360 703 6936. And mention this ad or a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.